Wow, it is really a cool and special thing always to get together with other believers and worship God. So thank you, those of you who have joined us in that today. Uh, it is very, very sweet to be worshiping God together. Well, generally speaking, most people consider Charles Blondin to be the greatest tightrope walker in history. And the cool thing about us in upstate New York is that many of his most iconic and best remembered walks happen right here in New York State over at Niagara Falls. In fact, all the way back in 1859, Blondin stretched a rope, 1,100 feet of rope to be exact, across Niagara Falls from the Canadian side to the American side and made his first walk. And the funny thing is, it seemed that the more he went across, and he did it many times, the more he walked that tightrope, the larger the crowds got. But Charles Blondin was a master showman. He had a great mind for marketing. And he realized that he couldn't just keep walking. He had to up the ante. He had to do something to make it more interesting. So he went across blindfolded, and the crowds got larger. He went across on stilts. He went across with a bag on his head. And the more he did, the more the crowds grew. Believe it or not, one day he actually carried a cooking stove, an actual stove, out toward the middle of that tightrope. He cooked an omelet on it and lowered it down to people in a ship 160 feet below. The crowds just couldn't get enough of Charles Blondin, and they basically started wondering, what can this man not do? Well, perhaps his best known and most talked about trip across was when he pushed a wheelbarrow across on that tightrope and went over to his adoring fans and said, how many of you believe that I could push a person across the tightrope over Niagara Falls? And of course, they all cheered and applauded and expressed their affirmation. We believe, we believe you can do it. And of course, he then said, Okay, who's first, right? And all he faced was stone-cold silence. No one volunteered. Now, through many years, I heard Billy Graham share that story more times than I can remember. And I I think that we preachers are drawn to that story. We love it so much because I think it's an example of real faith, right? The nature of saving faith. It's so easy to give lip service to God, isn't it? It's so easy to go to church, so easy to join a church, so easy to just say you believe, but it's a whole different matter to actually put your life into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I want to tell you today that, believe it or not, Charles Blondin and Jesus Christ have at least one thing in common. They both call us to put our faith into action. Now, if you've been with us in April, you know that we're in a series that I'm calling Reimagine. And all this month, I've been asking us to 
to kind of reimagine what God has put in us because he's put himself in us. And so we've been talking about the presence and the power and the potential of God in our lives. And I've been telling you that I think that is an absolute game changer. But I want to make this point crystal clear. When we talk about the power of God in our lives, it's not for our own aggrandizement. It's not so we can become narcissists. It's not so that people will praise us or talk about how wonderful we are. The power of God in our lives, listen to this, is always directly connected to doing the will of God in our lives. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done, Father, on earth as it is in heaven. That is a radical kingdom prayer. And when we really mean that prayer, and we jump into the wheelbarrow, as it were, and trust our lives with God out on the tightrope, that's when the power really shows up. Now, by the way, do you know the rest of the story? That story about Charles Blondin literally happened, but do you know that he actually eventually did get a volunteer? He really did. True story. You can read about it online. You can research this for yourself. A man named Harry Colcord eventually stepped forward. But instead of getting into the wheelbarrow, as Blondin had suggested, Harry Colcord jumped on Blondin's back. And in a moment of courage, or some might say insanity, he entrusted his very life to Charles Blondin. And Blondin told him, look up, Harry. You are no longer Colcord. You are Blondin. And until I clear this place, and by that he meant until I get us safely to the other side, Be a part of me, mind, body, and soul. If I sway, sway with me. Do not attempt to do any balancing yourself. And guess what? They made it successfully and safely to the other side. And my message today is simply this. If you're a follower of Jesus this day, he is giving a similar invitation to you and to me. Sway when I sway. Get out on the tightrope with me. Become one with me, mind and soul and spirit. Sink your life up with me. By the way, I would suggest to you that's a pretty good picture of what sanctification is all about. Over time, his values become increasingly our values. In fact, if you have your Bible right now, would you turn to a passage in the little book called 1 John, not the Gospel of John. We're going to go there in a moment. But right now, the little book called 1 John is toward the back of your New Testament. I want you to see a passage there in 1 John chapter 4. Because the process of sanctification, as I say, is all about his values becoming ours, his mind becoming our mindset. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, we have the mind of Christ. So I want you to see here the way the 
Apostle John puts it in 1 John chapter 4. Let's look at verse 13. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Again, the teaching about God's spirit living in us comes all over the New Testament. It's not just in the book of Acts. It's not just in an isolated letter here and there. It is all over the New Testament. Verse 15 says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him. Now, Let's pause there. What does it mean to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God? Again, in Johannine language, in in the way that John uses those words, it means not just that you give intellectual assent to it, but they're actually willing to put your life. You climb on Jesus' back, as it were. That's what it means to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. You put your whole life in his hands to get you safely to the other side. And when you do that, it says God lives in you and you in God. And then I love verse 17b. Note this phrase, because in this world, we are like him. Do you see that phrase? In this world, we are like him. That is, we're like him if we sway when he sways If we move when he moves, if we follow his lead and his guidance, he will get us safely to the other side. And we, you've heard this phrase probably, we become the hands and feet of Jesus. There's a sense in which that is true. If we sway when he sways and move when he moves and we're guided by the spirit of God. So let me just ask you today. Have you jumped on Christ's back, as it were? Are you living in obedience to him out on the tightrope? Because that's where the excitement is. He's called us to this radical life of courage and daring and great adventure out on the tightrope, and it is so exciting. God has wonderful things for you to do. It doesn't mean that they'll be blasted all over the news. That's not what I mean by wonderful. But he has meaningful, life-changing things, things with eternal impact for every one of us to be involved in if we'll just get out on the tightrope with him. I love the way the Apostle Paul describes that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, for we are God's workmanship. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so when you dare to get out on the tightrope and join in with God in his work, what he's designed for you to do, that's when the Holy Spirit shows up big time with power and you begin to live out the potential he's put inside of you. Now, there's one other passage I want us to see together. This is an incredible passage. From John's gospel. Just a moment ago, we were in 1 John. Now we're going to John's gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth book into your New Testament. And we're going to look at chapter 14. Chapter 14 in just a moment. And we're going to start at verse 15. But let me tell you the context as you're finding that. This is often called the upper room discourse. In other words, Before Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed in agony and sweat drops of blood, 
And before Jesus went to the cross where he died an atoning death so that our sins could be paid for, taken care of, and the justice of God satisfied, Jesus had this long discussion with his disciples. This is the same night, by the way, where they had the Last Supper together, that last Passover meal, where Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood that I'm inaugurating here. So that's the context. Very, very important as they're hearing these last words of Jesus. Let's look now, John 14, verse 15. I want you to note what Jesus promised would happen. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Don't you love how the Bible beats around the bush? No, that's like a two by four between the eyes, isn't it? If you love me, you're gonna obey what I command. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor. Push pause right there. In your Bible, Counselor probably begins with a capital C, right? Or maybe your translation says helper or aid or someone to comfort you. Or your translation may say paraclete. If it says paraclete with a capital P, that is a transliteration of the Greek word. It's a compound word, parakleton. Para alongside, it's a preposition, Kaleo means to call. So a paraclete is someone who's called alongside of you in order to give you counsel and comfort. And that's why counselor is actually a pretty good translation. I'm going to give you another. By the way, the word another there is alos rather than heteros, two words for another in Greek. And alos means another of exactly the same kind. That's important. Jesus is saying, the counselor who comes is going to be just like me. So even though I'm going to be going away physically from you, don't despair. I'm not going to leave you alone. What an encouraging word that must have been for these disciples who were freaking out when Jesus talked about going away. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Note those prepositions. He's with you, but he's going to be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. What an amazing statement Jesus made. Now, if you still have your Bible open there, I want you to go forward a couple of chapters to chapter 16. Would you find verse 7 of chapter 16? This is incredible. Jesus said here in John 16, verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, there's that word again, exactly the same word, parakleton, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him 
to you. Are you getting the gist of that? Jesus is saying to these anxious disciples, it's actually better that I'm going away because I'm going to send this comforter to come, not just to be with you, good news, he's actually going to be in you. And brothers and sisters, it's a whole lot better for God to be in you than just with you. Now let me explain how important that is. Throughout the years, I've heard a lot of people talk about the great men and women of God in the Bible and all the miraculous things God did through them and how awesome that must have been, particularly those in the Older Testament. And I agree. I mean, wouldn't it be awesome to see some of those miracles like the Red Sea opening up and water gushing from a rock and, and like Moses who saw all of that? Wouldn't it be awesome like Moses to have your face glow with the glory of God? I mean, that would be strange. Your family would be going, what's going on with you? Wouldn't it be amazing to be up on Mount Sinai receiving direct revelation from God? Is that awesome or what? But you know what I think? I think if Moses could be here with us in person today, I think he would say, look, I'm thankful to have had all those experiences, but can you tell me something, people of Grace Fellowship? What is it like to have God living inside of you? Because that's an experience I never had, but you have it if you're a follower of Jesus. Please don't miss the importance of this today. If we could call someone like Elijah, I mean, you want to get miracles? Just read the story of Elijah in 1 Kings. It is amazing. But if we could call Elijah and say, Elijah, how was it, man, to call fire down from heaven and defeat the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? How was it, Elijah, to be used by God to raise the widow of Zarephath's son from the dead? I mean, can you tell us about that? You know what I think Elijah would say? Hey, I can see you guys are pretty excited about those miracles, and I'll admit, it was wonderful to be a part of that. But you guys do understand, that young man died again eventually, don't you? And can I ask you all a question, 21st century Christ followers? What is it like to live in a world driven by fear and anxiety and chaos, but you have the God of all peace living in you. Please tell me what that's like because I never had that. God was with me. God was kind of on me at times to do miracles, but God never lived in me. What's that like? You've got it better than I did, so don't be looking enviously at me. I had no advantage whatsoever over you. Oh, we could go on and on. We could call David, the writer of many of the Psalms. David, the shepherd boy who was anointed as the next king. David, the great king of Israel. David, dude, what was it like to have victory after victory, to be able to slay a giant with such a pitiful weapon as a slingshot? What was it like, David, to be so inspired by God that you wrote Psalms that lift the soul to ecstasy? What was it like to have God working through you in that way? And I think David would say, fantastic. But I envy you. Because I had to pray prayers like, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Because the Spirit kind of came and went. 
But with you guys, spirit is not stinking leaving you. He's remaining in you. Now, you can quench him and you can suppress the Spirit's work, but he's not leaving you if you're a follower of Christ. He is remaining with you and living in you. That's a blessing, David would say, beyond anything I ever got to experience. So are you getting the gist of this, brothers and sisters? Amen. The fact that God is living in you is something that all those Old Testament saints could not even fathom. So if you are trusting Jesus today as your Savior, as I tell you all the time, he's forgiven all your sins, adopted you into his family, and he's changing you from the inside out. That's why Jesus could say, it's actually better for you that I'm going away because you're going to have a better deal going because the counselor the parakleton is going to come and live inside of you. Not just be with you, but even better, he's going to be in you. And so my question today is this. What's life like out on the tightrope? Swaying when he sways. Moving when he moves. Pam and Gary Willis are a bold example, I think, of what it looks like out on the tightrope. Pam was just minding her own business, scrolling through her Facebook feed back in 2019 when this news story caught her eyes. It was a story about seven children, seven siblings, whose parents had died in a horrible rollover car crash, and miraculously, all seven children had survived the crash. And now they were in foster care for about the last year, and they were looking for a permanent home. Pam just, Pam just felt moved. She couldn't stop staring at their faces. At that time, the oldest was 15 years old. The youngest child was age four. I, I printed this out. I'm going to read it to you exactly the way Pam said it. Here we go. One January day, I was scrolling through my Facebook feed when a news story post hit my heart like the biggest ton of bricks. Seven siblings in need of forever home, it said. In that instant, their sweet, smiling faces jumped off the screen and into my heart. I tagged my husband in the post. I thought about them all day. That evening, I asked my husband if he'd seen the post. Yes, he said. We should adopt them. We should, she said. You see, we knew deep inside that this mission was being placed before us. If not us, then who? It was what God wanted us to do. So then that night, folks, they called the number that was at the bottom of the story. And I go on with Pam's very words. They had been in foster care for a year since their parents had been killed in the car accident. And they had all miraculously survived. Who would keep them all together? Who would have the space for them? Who would have the time and the love and the patience for their trauma? The answer was clear. We would. Why else did we have a six-bedroom house that was about to have its last child's bedroom vacated? You see, they had five biological children of their own who were all grown up now. Why else would our nest that had raised our first five babies be empty just in time? It was only to make room for our new babies. 
They were ours from the minute we saw their faces on the news story. If you ask my friends, one moment they were reposting their heart-wrenching news story and calling attention to their plight. The next minute, we were meeting them, falling in love, and starting the adoption process. They moved in in June the 7th. We are their forever home. Now, friends, that's out on the tightrope with Jesus right there. I go on with these words from Pam. It was easy to connect with the little ones, said Pam. They were just desperately craving permanency. The older two were a little trickier. I think they didn't quite trust that we were real, like maybe we were going to go away. I think it's so hard to trust when so much has been taken from your life. Pam said, for the first six months, the kids struggled with sleep. There were frequent nightmares. One night, my then seven-year-old, came into our room, Pam recalled. I asked her, did you have a bad dream? She replied, no, I just wanted to make sure you were still here. Pam and Gary aren't going anywhere. You see, they're out on the tightrope with Jesus. Now, can you reimagine what being out on the tightrope might look for you. For most of you, it will not involve adopting seven children. So you can breathe again. But what would it mean? Can I suggest a couple of things? For some of you, you need to start with baby steps out on the tightrope. It might mean cleaning out your basement. Really, I believe revival could happen in a lot of families if we just cleaned out our garage, our attic, and our basement. Travel a little lighter, for God's sake. Chuck some stuff. You don't need it. You can't take it to heaven with you. And it's not helping anybody. You've even forgot you have it. Chuck it. Give it away. Sell it. Do something. Travel a little lighter. That'll be a baby step. Honestly, out on the tightrope a little bit. For others of you, Focusing on personal growth might be out on the tightrope with you. Just engaging in some Bible reading. Maybe getting some prayer disciplines down in your life, which you've neglected for a while. That would honestly represent a significant step out on the tightrope with Jesus in your life. For some of you, God's grandest purpose for you right now might be to get some healing from some old wounds. All God's children have got wounds, trust me. But some have wounds, perhaps from a tragic divorce, perhaps from a relationship with a family member where maybe a parent was toxic or a sibling was so mean, or it might be a wound from sexual abuse or perhaps addictions in your life, or, or even a combination of these things kind of working together, that might be tightrope living for you. And I can tell you for sure, God wants you to heal from those things. I can tell you with confidence that God does not want wounds and pain from our past to hinder our progress in the present. I can tell you that for sure. And it's only as you engage 
with the Holy Spirit out on the tightrope that those self-defeating voices in your head are going to be eliminated and these new floodgates of power are going to start opening up. So I I don't know what life out on the tightrope will mean for you exactly, but I was just praying this week, God, would you give me a word today? Would you just give me a word for some people who think they may be all alone in this? And I felt the Holy Spirit just whispered to me, just remind them that they're never out on the tightrope alone. And so I literally said, it may sound corny to you, but I said, God, what do you want me to say to the people? And I think God just gave me some exhortations. So I want to end with these today. And if the shoe fits, wear it. If one of these words is for you, would you just take it and embrace it and internalize it and understand that God's word to you is personal and powerful? So let me close with some reminders. If you find yourself today betrayed by a friend that you thought you could always trust, you're not out on the tightrope alone. When that ultrasound, when the technicians can't seem to find a heartbeat, you feel empty inside, you feel anguish, but I just think God wants to say to you, you are not out on that tightrope alone. When your aging parents now need you to kind of parent them and their expectations for you are just unrealistic. And it's so frustrating because the roles have now reversed and you feel the pressure of those expectations. I want to tell you, you're not on that tightrope alone. When your beloved family pet of many years, isn't it crazy how much we fall in love with a dog or cat or, well, maybe not a cat, but <laughs> I don't know, a dog, uh, a parakeet. Uh, isn't, it, isn't it crazy how we just grow to love these family pets and, and, and your family pet passes away? I just want to tell you, you're not out on the tightrope alone. Or when you've got doubts, and this is for many of you, when you've got doubts that your faith can actually address an ever-changing culture, where it seems that everything is up for grabs, and you sometimes wonder, is my faith still relevant? I want to tell you, you're not on that tightrope alone. And when you're getting persecuted and marginalized and overlooked for promotions and raises at work simply because of the color of your skin, you are not on that tightrope alone. And when your friends are driving you crazy with political conspiracy theories, you're not on the tightrope alone when you're struggling to find vocational direction in your life and you wonder, what am I supposed to do? You're not on the tightrope alone. 
when your dear family member has been diagnosed with cancer, you are not on that tightrope alone. When there's just too much month left at the end of the money, and there doesn't seem to be enough to make ends meet, you are not on that tightrope alone. When your spouse is insensitive and selfish and sometimes appears like a brute, and you wonder if he or she even likes you, much, much less loves you, you are not on that tightrope alone. When your children seem to be living contrary to almost all the values you taught them and sometimes just break your heart, you are not on the tightrope alone. <laughs> or children, whether adult, small, when you live with toxic parents who push you to the edge every single week and you find it very difficult to honor them, Jesus says to you today, you're not on that tightrope alone. When your financial portfolio is far from where you thought it would be at this season of your life, you are not out on that tightrope alone. And finally, when your dreams have died and you're struggling to find a new dream worth living for, you are not on the tightrope alone. So please, please stop acting like you're alone. It's time for us, by God's grace, to reimagine what it means that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is actually living in us right now. That's a game changer. And it is time that we begin to live every day with that in mind, out on the tightrope. Father, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters, my fellow travelers on this journey who are out on the tightrope. We're out there with you, Lord. You've called us out. You've called us to courage. You've called us to daring risk. You've called us to trust you, to jump on your back and sway when you sway. And move when you move, and you'll get us safely to the other side. But when we're tempted to doubt that you're with us, we're tempted to start acting and feeling like we're all alone, would you gently but firmly remind us we are not left as orphans? You are the parakletos called alongside to comfort, to counsel, to guide, and to get us safely through. Oh God, would you, would you just create just explosions of insight in us this week? Would you create in us breakthroughs that we never dreamed? Would you help us, in short, to reimagine what it means that you are alive in us? And we promise you, we're going to sway when you sway. In Jesus' name, amen.